while you turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about a storm that I faced, just to set this up. It was uh, 2010, and my family of five was in our final year at seminary in California, and I was excited. I had most of the more academically challenging classes under my belt. I'd gone through Greek and Hebrew and all the theology courses. And the final two semesters that I was enrolled in was going to be a cakewalk for me. I was doing what I loved to do. They were elective courses. I was choosing the topics that interested me, that I was passionate about. And I had never been more excited about getting trained and getting sent out into pastoral ministry. It was smooth sailing from here on out. Our final year, I had a cake job. I worked for John MacArthur at Grace to You. I got paid to listen to sermons and chop them up into 23-minute segments for the radio show, Grace to You. I got paid to do that. I would have done it for free and lived under a bridge, but I got paid to do it. Our children were happy and excited to be moving back. So our little family was sailing over smooth waters and really enjoying life. And then out of the clear blue sky, this terrible, dark, intense, and agonizing storm just swept out of nowhere and just knocked our entire family off of our feet. It nearly sunk us. And here's what happened. When that spring semester began, Sarah developed a serious infection that was related to breastfeeding. And so she had to abruptly stop nursing our then eight-month-old son, Jackson. And her infection healed within a few days, but something happened one of those nights that had never happened to her before since we'd been married. She didn't sleep. I mean, hardly at all. And usually my wife, she is asleep before the lights are out and her head hits the pillow. So it... It um, confused us a little bit, but it didn't concern us really. We were puzzled, but we weren't very upset. And then it happened again the next night. And then it happened again the next night. And then it happened again the next night and the next night. And then we were really concerned. Because listen, there's a reason why God created us to curl up in a fetal position every night for eight hours and suck our thumb. Uh, it's because we need sleep. When we don't get sleep... Things don't go well for us, especially my wife, the way God made her. Biologically, physiologically, she needs a good night's sleep, and she hadn't gotten it in about a week. And she's probably one of the strongest human beings I know. But by, by the end of that first week, she was a mess, and I was a mess, and our family, our kids were a mess, and she took a complete nosedive. She was crashing. So we fervently prayed that God would heal uh, my wife, that he would restore her sleep. He would get us back on schedule to get done with seminary and get back home. We thought this would be a little hiccup in, in the ride, you know. So we called some uh, Christian friends of ours who were older, kind of mentored us, and they said, you need to call your doctor immediately. And so we did. And he said that Sarah's infection, he, he chalked it up to just a sleep disturbance that uh, had been triggered by her infection. And he said, you know what, this, this insomnia is going to fizzle out on its own. Don't even worry about it. He prescribed a very mild sleeping aid for her, um, and she took it, but her sleep still remained unstable and got worse and wor worse, and we were at two weeks now with hardly any sleep for Sarah, and days were wearisome. We dreaded them. Um, nights were torturous. We were thousands of miles away from our family and our friends here in Florida, I mean, in three years, how close can you really get to somebody? We didn't, we were embarrassed a little bit by it. You know, we were trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just weather this storm alone. But it was agonizing. We felt trapped. We felt alone. We felt like we were sinking. And to be honest with you, kind of felt like, God, where are, where are you in all this? What's, what are you doing? You're killing us. 
Well, insomnia took over our lives. We adjusted the best we could. I took off work a lot. Uh, I missed a lot of my school classes, and, and we fully expected for, for God to heal her and, and to take this away. We were trying to weather it. But whenever Job says the thing that is, I feared the most has come upon me, um, that happened to us. One afternoon, Sarah was cleaning, and this wave of intense darkness just swept completely over her and engulfed her. She described it as feeling trapped in a black hole, um, and life really started to unravel fast. Her sanity started to get very fragile. She was troubled with all these thoughts that were just assaulting her, and it didn't get any better. It got worse. She was harassed by these thoughts night and day. Troubling images plagued her mind. She was sad. She was afraid. Mentally and physically, she was getting worse. She lost her appetite. Um, she couldn't eat. Her clothes were just hanging off of her body. And if you know Sarah, that's not a good thing. The exhaustion and the lingering side effects from the sleeping pills made it hard for us to function normally. She, she didn't want to be alone with the kids, not because she was questioning whether or not she wanted to live, but because she didn't trust herself. She couldn't drive. We had to arrange for people to stay with her. We had to arrange for people to stay with our kids. We converted our bedroom where we had slept together for those first three years, that became a bunker. We blacked out all the lights. We shoved the towel under the door. She would sleep alone every night with earbuds in her ear. I had a mattress in the floor in the living room where I slept with our eight-month-old son. I mean, I'm trying to study, hold down a full-time job. And I'm waking up throughout the night, feeding him from a bottle. It wasn't fun. It, it was agonizing. And after about six weeks, I officially withdrew from classes. And I was prepared to quit my job and say, you know what? I can't do this anymore. She can't do this. I don't know what God's doing, but I'm ready to move back home and get help. I can't, I can't do this anymore. But we, we fought the good fight. Sarah put sticky notes all over our apartment with scripture on them. One of her friends, Elizabeth Pendry, told, <laughs> told her to make a, a card and put, I am not crazy on it, and carry it around with her. And she did, and that helped her tremendously to believe that. Then one day we were about to leave for church, and Sarah couldn't take it anymore. The toll was just too great. We were all dressed. We were ready to go. I was a part of the children's ministry at the church at that time, and Sarah just collapsed in a heap in the floor. She couldn't move. She could barely talk. All she could do was just sob. And I said, that's, that's enough. Can't do this. So I called her doctor, and he said, you need to go check her into the ER immediately. And so we did that. And he said, your wife needs to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. That's the hardest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, and if you know Sarah, that's her worst nightmare. That is the absolute, you could ask her, what's the worst thing you could ever face? And it will be the possibility that I'm going crazy. And the doctor said, the chair of the psychiatric, psychiatric ward will not be here until the morning, so you're going to have to stay overnight. <laughs> that was the second scariest thing that she ever heard. You're going to have to see a mental health physician, and you're going to have to stay in the psychiatric ward all night long. And we had kids. I didn't have a babysitter, so I couldn't stay there with her. That's the hardest decision I've ever made in my life. But I loved my wife. And you know what? That was so counter-Christian to me. At the time, I'm just being honest. I was not in a place where I was so secure in the gospel that I was okay <clears throat> seeing maybe a psychiatrist or a psychologist or talking about medication. That wasn't anywhere on our radar. Christians don't get depressed, right? Christians don't get sad. Christians aren't weak. Christians have it all together. Christians never let them see a sweat. That was our mentality. And that mentality was killing my family. So I said, honey... We're going to have to trust God. We don't have any other choice. 
so I left her there that night, and I took our kids home, and I played this game in my mind with God. Maybe you've done this. I said, God, what are you doing to us? What are you doing to us? I'm here. I've worked three years as a Barney Fife, an overnight security guard at a college, drinking dishwater coffee. I've been living on faith and ramen noodles in this little rinky-dink two-bedroom apartment. I get two hours of sleep at night. I've taken the hardest academic classes I've ever had in my life. I'm supposed to be a preacher, God. I'm on your, I'm, I'm on your team, God. You ever do that? You ever think that way? Argue that way with God? That don't work with God. I said, you're supposed to be training me, God. And he said, I am training you. See, I had all these books about God's power and his sovereignty and his majesty and his glory, and I was supposed to trust him. I had all those books, thousands of dollars worth of books in my office and in my bedroom, but there's some things you can't learn in a book. There's some things you don't learn in a seminary hall with a professor standing up lecturing you. Some things God has to show you, he has to prove to you. It's the roughest thing we've ever gone through, and it was a reality check for me. So she saw the I know you want to know the rest of the story. I'm going to get there, okay? My wife's here, and she's sane. Praise God. We came through the storm. She saw the chair of the psychiatric ward the next morning, and he told us what we kind of already knew. He said, she said, rather, this is not a big deal at all. This, this is a classic textbook um, postpartum depression, and it's, and it's not a big deal at all. And I'm going to give you some stronger sleeping aids to get your sleep back on track, and everything's going to get better. Well, that night... She, or the, the next day she came back home, we were grateful, we were rejoicing, she took this medication, and we had this thing, she would sleep in her room, or sleep, quote unquote, try to sleep, and I would be out there on the mattress, and she would walk out and, and push the little rolled up towel into the door, and we had this like cognitive understanding, she would look at me, and I would hold thumbs up or thumbs down, did you sleep, did you sleep at all, did you toss and turn, and it was usually like Caesar, thumbs down, no, I'm not, it's not going to be a good day. She came out that morning at 4 a.m., and she said, okay, I'm not taking that medicine anymore. And I said, why not? She said, people are coming down through the ceiling. <laughs> so I don't know, Doc, what that medicine was they put her on, but she didn't take it anymore. But it was about this time that we met a doctor from the church we were attending. He believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. He believed in the sufficiency of Christ. And he also believed that medicine and the Bible are friends, not enemies. Amen? <laughs> And so he told her, he said, look, your sleep's not going to get back on track because your hormones in your body are so out of balance, Sarah. And he said, you're going to have to take this depression medication. I don't know how long you're going to have to take it, but if you don't, you're not going to get better. You're going to get worse. And guys, you got to understand, we had fasted. We had prayed. I had morbidly and introspectively looked at every sin I'd ever committed, every temptation I ever faced. I thought this was spiritual warfare. Satan was attacking me. I'd done all of that. None of it had worked. And the doctor said, Tommy... You're going to kill yourself and you're going to kill your wife. you got to take this medication. And so he prescribed a very moderate uh, antidepressant pill that I don't even remember the name of it. But, um, and she took it. And within a couple of weeks, her sleeping stabilized again. I cannot tell you how thankful we were. We were, wor we were dancing in our living room when she slept the full night's uh, sleep. And, you know, we were thinking, hey, this is it. I'm not going to be in ministry Sarah may get taken away in the paddy wagon, you know, I, <laughs> we didn't know what was going to happen, but God did, and he brought us through that storm, and I want to tell you what that storm did for us. See, I was ready to be sent out with my guns blazing. I had been to seminary, man. I had all the answers. I had all the doctrine. I had all the theology. God had entrusted me with all these sharp weapons, and I was ready to go out and unleash it on God's people, and God said, 
Hold on there, cowboy. I got one more lesson for you before you go. You need to learn a little compassion. Number one, you need to know who I am. You don't really know that fully yet. You think you do, like the disciples in this boat did, but you don't really know. I'm, I'm right now, I'm in 480 standard def. You need to see me in 4K, right? High definition, and God did that. And to this day, seven years later, not a day goes by that I'm not impacted, and my wife is not impacted by that storm that God brought us through. Not a day goes by. We're more tender, we're more compassionate, we're more understanding. We trust God. Even when we can't see him, we know he's there in the darkness. Sometimes he's a terrible traveling companion, but he's an excellent pilot. And God taught us that through that time there. And he still does teach us that. And so I want us to look together at this storm that these disciples uh, faced. And Mark chapter 4, we already have read the text. I'm just going to have three points this morning. You can put them up there and you can take a look at them. Three points, okay? Storms will come. When they do, like mine and like the disciples, your faith will waver, okay? Your faith will waver. Nobody, only one person ever had perfect faith, and it's not Tommy, it's not the apostles, and it's not you. And third, Jesus is faithful. So really, if you could summarize that, we're going to look at storms, we're going to look at faith, and we're going to look at Jesus. That's our outline today. Point number one, storms will come. Look at verse 37 and 38 here in Mark chapter 4. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. You know, there's three times in this passage that the word great is used, and it's the word in Greek, megas. It means mega. It means loud. It means intrusive. It means tremendous. This was a terrible storm. And listen, storms, a couple of things you need to know about what the ancients thought about the ocean and the sea and storms. See, the sea was the great unknown. And it represented something wild, something unexplored, something dangerous, something chaotic. And at some point, something evil and uncontrollable. It couldn't be trusted. That's why a lot of people struggle when the Bible talks about heaven. You know one of the things it says is no longer going to be there? The sea. Surf, Jeff hates that. Surfers hate that. But listen, it's not that you're going to be deprived of, of anything that, that gives you pleasure in heaven. It's just that nothing wild and evil and chaotic and uncontrollable is going to be there. That's all that that means in Revelation. It's kind of an allegory, I think. But to the ancient people, the ocean was a scary place. And especially because of the waves, because of enemy ships you might encounter, but especially because of storms. Because storms were sudden and they were intense. They were sudden and they were very intense. And you got to remember, this was at night. Evening had came. These guys were tired. They were exhausted. You know, the Sea of Galilee is really low below the sea. Mount Hermon up north is really high, 9,200 square feet. So these, these mega storms would come down suddenly and unexpected at any given moment. And you know, these, a lot of these disciples were seasoned fishermen. They were seasoned fishermen, but they were petrified of the storm. In Greek, some people translate this, a furious squall came down into the Sea of Galilee. It would be like a hurricane. And they were just expecting, look, it's been a long day of ministry. Jesus has been teaching all day. we got tremendous crowds. This is going to be just a quick, easy eight-mile sail across the Sea of Galilee. And then out of nowhere, this hurricane sweeps down, and they think they're going to die. So what is the lesson here? What's the lesson Sometimes God brings storms, doesn't he? He does. Sometimes God brings storms. We don't expect them. We don't want them. We don't like them, but he brings the storms. That's his plan. He radically interrupts our plans. 
and dramatically reshapes our understanding of who he is. And listen, this didn't happen in the synagogue. This didn't happen in the temple. This happened in the, basically in the middle of the week for these guys. Sometimes it's something so mundane that God interrupts you with a storm to show you who he is and who you are and how much you need your faith to be fixed on him. He does that. Maybe it's something like our family went through, a, a health crisis, anxiety, or depression. Maybe it's something more severe like dementia or Alzheimer's. Maybe it's persecution or a tragedy, an unexplained family death happens all the time. A temptation, a besetting sin, a personal addiction. All these storms come. Financial hardship. Homelessness can happen in five minutes. I've learned that in this city. There are people in this city that are a decision away from being homeless. That's a serious storm. Serious sickness, weaknesses, fractured marriage, wayward children that you haven't talked to in a decade. Those are storms, aren't they? And we think, God, what are you doing to me? I didn't sign up for this. I'm on your team. And so we're overwhelmed and we go into survival mode. It's all we can think about. It controls us. It overwhelms us. When I was going through that storm in California for about three months, that's all I thought about. It absolutely dominated my thinking and controlled me. I took it to bed with me and I woke up in the morning with me. That storm cloud went all around with me. And listen, different people react in different ways to storms. Some people absolutely panic and freak out like these disciples did. We don't like to think that we do. We think we're being faithful. I remember a preacher friend of mine telling a story about his wife had a serious car wreck. Broke her neck in several places. Was very likely facing the possibility of paralysis. She was airlifted to the hospital. This preacher met the rest of his family there and saw the condition she was in. And his then youngest daughter, she was around 20, she flipped out. She was crying, screaming uncontrollably. This preacher was telling this story to, to demonstrate what faith looks like. And he said, I walked up to her and I grabbed her by the shoulders and I shook her. And I said, do you believe that God is sovereign or not? And she said, yes. He said, then you better start acting like it. And I'm thinking, uh, neither of you responded the right way in that. <laughs> right? Some people flip out like these disciples did. They were bailing water, yelling at the teacher. And listen, some people, they're done. They're done. They're checked out. They're apathetic and indifferent. They're like, kill me. In the marriage, serve me the papers. Maybe if it's an addiction, they go, shoot me up one last time with everything you got. I'm done. I'm not going to fight this. I'm just going to lay down and die. It's interesting, the, 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 the full spectrum that you have. But here's the problem that we have. I think in America especially. We think that storms somehow are way outside of God's plan. And, and beloved, they're not. That's what God is teaching us here. Storms are some of the best gifts that God sends his children. He loves us too much to protect us from them. Here's a couple of quotes that I want to show you from some eminent theologians, if we could uh, pull those up for a second. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Contrary to the picture sometimes painted of the Christian life, Jesus did not solve all the disciples' problems and protect them from trials and perplexities. In fact, sometimes he led them quite deliberately into them. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? Sometimes Jesus led these disciples quite deliberately into storms. And then David Garland says this. I don't know if you can see it there. The emphasis in this story is on who Jesus is, not on how he rescues fretful disciples from danger whenever they cry out to him. Did you hear that? 
If you think the story here is God always immediately rescues you from your storms, eh, that's the wrong application and interpretation of this. One cannot expect a miraculous intervention that will calm the storms in life. Storms are a part of, what's that say? A part of life from which no one escapes. There are no stormless seas. There are no stormless seas. I remember back in 2005, it was one of the first times I ever encountered John Piper. You guys know who John Piper is? He's a great pastor, great theologian. And he was speaking to about 1,000 college students. And just out of the blue nowhere, he made a statement. I'm going to paraphrase what he says. He said, I don't know how you feel about the prosperity gospel movement in America. The prosperity movement, which basically promises you, if you're a Christian and trust God, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, um, you're going to have everything that you ever wanted. Piper said, I don't know how you feel about that, but I will tell you how I feel about it. Hatred. He said, I feel hatred because it's selling people a lie. It's selling them a bill of goods, thinking that somehow that's going to make Jesus look more attractive and more beautiful to them. And he said, it's coming out of America and it's going to all the third world countries like Asia and Africa. They're promising people, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe the gospel, your pigs won't die. And you'll have rings on your finger. And your wife won't be infertile and have miscarriages. And Piper said, we're selling this garbage from America. We ought to be preaching the true gospel. He said, but that doesn't make Jesus look beautiful. And then he said this, I'll never forget it. He said, I will tell you what, G what makes Jesus look beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying out the windshield and lands dead on the pavement. And you can say with deep pain, God is enough. God is enough, and God loves me, and God will get me through this. He is my Savior. There is none in earth or in heaven I desire more than him. And though my heart and my strength and my little girl may fail, he's my portion forever. He said that makes Jesus look attractive and look beautiful, not this garbage called the prosperity gospel. Listen, God does not protect us from storms, guys. He loves us too much to do that. It's part of our training. And it's some of the best training. And, and you know what? On the resurrection day, J.C. Ryle said this, we will thank God for every storm that he ever sent. I believe that. We won't like them when they're here. We may cry. We may do what the disciples did and absolutely flip out and freak. But on the resurrection day, we will thank God for every single storm that he ever sent to us. Because we'll know that he is sovereign and he's wise and he's good. Storms teach us that. These men, I think demonstrate what most of us um, feel like in a storm. And it's really interesting. If you're here today, maybe, and you question the authority of the Bible, can you really trust the Bible? All these stories, they've been kind of doctored up and embellished. I mean, this story's in three Gospels. Did you know that? Mark tells this story, Matthew tells this story, and Luke tells this story. And they're all similar, but they all bear the, uh, the marks of an eyewitness account. And it's, it's interesting because I read this when I was studying for this. There are three different responses from the disciples in each account. Did you know that? In one of the accounts, they say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. In another account, they say, master, master, we are perishing. And in Mark's account, they say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And you say, see, you can't trust the Bible. All of those are contradicting themselves. And I say, no, they're not. This is raw, unedited, unvarnished, 12 men screaming like a little girl. Don't you think they were all saying something to Jesus? who was asleep in the stern of the boat. Don't you think that? Don't you love this? The Bible never edits itself. It tells us, it shows us the worst of how disciples can act, how panicked they were. Hey, maybe a few of the disciples were just laying down in the water saying, that's it, we're going to drown, we're going to die. 
They didn't expect it. They didn't like it. Because, listen, it was incompatible with their expectations of who Jesus was and what he had called them to. Storms are, aren't they? We think that they are incompatible with our view of who God is and what our Christianity is going to be like. And that brings us to point two. Storms will come. They will. And listen, God may seem indifferent. He may seem distant. He may seem uncaring. Look at verse 38 here. Where is Jesus in all this? I mean, that's what people ask when the storm comes. God, I believe you're sovereign. I'm not an atheist, but can I just ask you a question? Where are you? Where are you? And you see the worst answer in this story, humanly speaking. It's not that God's not anywhere to be found. He's right there. He's asleep. Seems to be uncaring, distant, cold, apathetic, complacent. That's what it looks like on the outside, isn't it? That's what it looks like. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed. He found the love of his life named Joy. He was content to be single the rest of his life and be a Christian apologist and write and preach. But he fell in love, and she died of cancer the year they got married. And he wrote a book he never intended to be published, but it was, what's it called when something's published post, I always think it's post-humorously, but that's not funny, it's something else. Anyway, that was, thank you, yeah, it was posted after, after he passed, and, and one of the memorable quotes in there is this, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Isaiah in chapter 45 wrote this. He said, truly you are a God who hides himself. You ever feel like that? God's hiding. Where is he? He's hiding. He's not here. He doesn't care. He's not around right now. When you need him the most, you hear the the double boat slide. Office closed. Adoniram Judson was the first Baptist missionary to Burma in around 1813. Even his friend, missionary William Carey, said, don't go there, it's a mistake. Man, when the missionaries are telling you not to go, you know you're up against something tough. He went there and stayed 33 years, had the most agonizing trial and experience I think anybody's ever experienced outside of the Bible. Three of his wives, two, two of his wives died, and he married a third time before he, uh, the, the final years of his life. But his father died, uh, his three children died, and his wife died within the first two years that he was there. And he went in a terrible depression, and he wrote this. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Now, he wrote that as a Christian. He wasn't denying the faith. He was just being raw and honest about his experience with God. But if you go to Burma, the, what's called modern-day Burma today, do you know that there are over 4,000 Baptist churches there and over a million Christians? You know where all that started? That seed that fell to the earth that Jeff talked about last week and died. That, stor- that storm caused tremendous growth, and he could have never known. And had he known, maybe it would have puffed him up so much with pride, he would, he would have bowed out. Jesus is not always a comfortable traveling companion, but he is a tremendous pilot. And this is about faith. They they test our faith. It's interesting, the way this should be translated in Greek, Jesus basically says, where is your faith? And that's a good question because it could be, it could be that Jesus is saying, what are you attaching your faith to? Is it safety? Did you think this will just be a nice, comfortable, uh, joyful ride across the lake? I didn't promise that. That's what prosperity gospel does. It makes promises that God never made in the Bible. Never. 
In this world, you will have much tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That's the promise that God made, right? Jesus said, what is your faith attached to? Your health? Your wife's sanity? My idol was my wife's physical and mental well-being. God showed me that. That's a great thing to have, but it's a terrible thing to place the weight of your worship on, guys. What is it that you're attaching your faith to? A great marriage? Romance for decades? A thriving church that fills up even to the back rows? People praising you on the back? What is it? Money, success, notoriety? Everybody has something they put their faith in that your kids will love you and respect you and go to an Ivy League school and land a six-digit salary career somewhere. Everybody's faith is in something. So you can sympathize with the disciples, can't you? But it's interesting. Jesus did not coddle them. He did not say, oh, I understand how you feel. He said, where's your faith? He got to the root of the issue. This is a faith issue. It's a faith issue. He's saying your approach is all wrong. Tim Keller said this once. Keller said, if you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. Isn't that good? If God's great enough and powerful enough, and this goes even for atheists and unbelievers too, they're mad at God, the God they don't believe in, because they can't possibly think of a reason for him to allow such injustice and evil and tyranny in the world. But listen, if God's that great that he can bear the weight of your anger, uh, maybe his wisdom is a tad greater than you think too, right? But, so what's the faith in? What, what's, what's Jesus talking about when he says, where's your faith here? Well, we have to go back, Mark 4, verse 35. The first thing Jesus said to them after a long day of teaching, he was exhausted, and it even says, and he, they took him in the boat with them as he was. He didn't even get out of the boat after teaching all day and go home and change, okay? He was so exhausted, he was in the boat, and he said, guys, let us go to let us go across to the other side. Now, look what I've highlighted here, okay? Here's what the faith is in. Do not miss this. This was a storm that suddenly came down with fury upon the disciples and their master. But listen, guys, they were exactly where Jesus told them to be. If you want to say it, they were in the center of his will, which is the safest place in the world. I don't know if I would use safest place in the world. It's the best place in the world to be. It may kill you. It may sink you. But they were exactly where God told them to be. Us, across, other side. Jesus is saying, you didn't trust me, guys. You didn't trust me. Listen, he didn't, he didn't wake up from his slumber and say, how could you talk to me that way? How can you be so insensitive? And by the way, they were. You know how insulting it is to say, don't you care about us? Just one chapter before, he said, you're my family. <laughs> they knew he had power. They knew that he had called them. He made all these promises to them of what their ministry, they were going to be fishers of men. They were going to see him uh, in his glory. None of those things had all happened yet. So they weren't, the issue was they weren't trusting Jesus. He said, let us go across to the other side. You hear the promises there? Jesus says, listen, guys, we're going to start here. We're going to go across to over there, and we're going to do it together. He didn't promise them the boat wouldn't rip apart. He didn't promise them they'd have to swim and may end up on the beach naked with just their lives. He didn't say any of that, but he did say, and you can go to the next slide, he did say, we are going across to the other side. And listen, they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. And that's what Jesus brings up. That's what the faith is in, God's promises. 
So let me say it to you this way. When your storms come, and they will, and your faith falters, and it will, what do you do? You know what Sarah and I talked about more than anything else when we were going through that trial? We said, look, we know that there are things that we can't possibly understand right now. There's things we don't know. How long is this going to last? I don't know. Is this ever going to go away? That was the hardest one to talk to her about. What if it's like this the rest of our life? Will it be? I don't know. I don't know, honey. But I know this. God's not going to abandon us. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. He's not jumping ship. He may seem asleep, but he's in the boat. And we're exactly where he said that we were going to go. And he said, he said, we're getting to the other side. Jesus said, I'm the author and the finisher of, of your faith. Jesus said, he who had begun a good work in you, he said it through Paul, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I will be with you until the end of the age. He said all those things. And listen, if Jesus said it, you can bank on it. You can build your life on any promise that Jesus ever uttered. That was at, what was at the bottom of this. In other words, listen, Jesus may not always show up and stop the waves and the wind, and we shouldn't promise people that he will. That's prosperity gospel. We're promising people that things that are only going to happen in heaven are only going to be true in heaven. There's no more evil, no more sin, no more injustice, no more crying, no more death, no more sickness. But listen, guys, not yet. It's not yet. That's to come. That was the test. And here's the third point. Here's the third point. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Storms will come. Your faith will waver, no doubt. Mine did. The apostles did. And I'm sure that you can testify that yours has, is, and will. And listen, the good news this morning, uh, maybe you're just coming out of a storm and you're thinking, whew, um, or maybe you're about to go into a storm. And listen, it's better to learn this lesson before the storm hits. Or maybe some of you are in the middle of a storm right now. You don't have to raise your hand, but that's where we live most of the time, isn't it? I read of a storm the other day. The longest storm in U.S. history was 41 days. It was a hurricane. Can you imagine living in the place where it just hovered and just wreaked havoc? Sometimes we feel like God's doing that to us, don't we? But the last thing is that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. You know, the, the, the word megos for great, tremendous, loud, intense is used three times in this passage. First, it's a mega storm that swept down. And then when Jesus stood up and spoke to the waves and to the wind, and essentially, it's really interesting here in Greek. He is speaking to the winds and the waves the same way he spoke to the demons in Mark chapter 1. He essentially rebukes them. He says, be silent, shut up. He doesn't get out a wand and do some incantation. No, it's just the raw authority of the words of Jesus. He is the creator, and the creation hears his voice and obeys him. Can you imagine this, the, these huge waves lapping against the boat and then just crystal, crystal flat? You could look at the surface of the water and see your face in it. I mean, it, it, it's one thing to say to the wind, peace be still, but Jesus also spoke to the water. I think that's what blew the disciples away. Usually when the wind stops, the waves kind of fizzle and die down, but no, it all happens suddenly and immediately. Just absolute serenity and tranquility. I bet the silence was deafening. And listen, this new storm came into their heart. There's three times the word megos is used there. Once for the storm. Once for the storm. Uh, secondly, look at it here. He was in the stern asleep and they woke him. Do you not care? And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So first there's a great storm. Secondly, there's a great calm. And then look thirdly, 
verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. It basically says they feared with a great fear. It's megos fear. See, the, the storm was on the outside now, but now it's on the inside. There's, there's a new storm. See, the disciples realized this storm that we were getting swept away in was uncontrollable, but now we realized there's a person in the boat with us who's uncontrollable. Who is this? I mean, that's the question that the entire gospel of Mark answers. Who is this man that even the waves and the wind and the sea obey him? And here, I think, is what Jesus was teaching them and teaching us. Before, they were overwhelmed with this. They were in awe of the storm. They were afraid of the storm. They were consumed by it. It had paralyzed them, captivated them. And Jesus says, look, guys, as long as you live your life this way, you're going to be weak and you're going to be ineffective and you're going to be unfruitful. I want you to be overwhelmed with me. I want you. It's not that they were afraid of Jesus and were trying to jump out of the boat. No, they didn't want to jump out of the boat. They just realized who was in the boat with them, and they were in awe of him. They were overcome. That's what that word means. They were worshiping. Matthew's version, I think, says they marveled. They were blown away at the power and the majesty and the glory of Christ, that he could tame the storm just like that. And you say, well, so is, is the answer you're telling us just to have more faith? No, it's not the quality of your faith and the strength of your faith. You know that, right? It's the object of your faith. Ron Dunn is one of my favorite preachers, and he talks about when his family vacationed in Colorado, there were 12 frozen trout lakes all around there. And he said there was a local there, and he said, Pastor, this may be the only time you ever get to walk on water. I want to take you out on one of those lakes. And Ron Dunn, he was older, he's a little bit heavy, and he said, oh, no, 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 I don't walk on lakes. And he said, no, you, you need to do this before you leave. And so he took him to the edge of the lake, and Ron Dunn said, man, I... I tiptoed out there. I was nervous. I stayed along the edge. And he said, you know, you weigh less when you tiptoe. Did you know that? And he was listening for any sound of fractured ice. And he said, it was terrible. My heart was racing. And I dashed back over to the edge and said, well, thank you. But no, thank you. I'm not interested. And he said, they were driving back to their cabin. And he said, he happened to glance over and saw this enormous man walking all over the place and then plopped down in the middle of a frozen trout lake on this big box and was ice fishing. And he said, what in the world? What's that? And he said, oh, that guy's local. He's been here a long time. He knows the ice. He trusts it. And Ron Dunn said, that stuck with me. He knows the ice. He trusts it. And Ron Dunn asked this question. He said, let me ask you a question. Who was safer on that ice that afternoon? Me or that man who was out there um, who had confidence in the ice? Me, I didn't. I didn't trust it at all. Who was safer? And Ron said, the answer, neither of us. Because it wasn't how we felt about the ice that protected us. It wasn't our faith and our confidence in the ice. It was the ice, right? The quality of your faith, guys, is, is not, that's not the end all in Christianity. It's the object of your faith. That's what matters. And listen, Mark is doing something really interesting here to help you and I the next time we go through a storm. And I'm really excited to show you this because it is unmistakable that Mark is paralleling something that happened in the Old Testament that was really similar to this. The language is almost identical. There was a prophet named Jonah in the Old Testament. You remember the story? And he ran from God. God wanted to send him to Nineveh to preach the gospel. And he said, no, thanks, not interested. There are sworn national enemies. He went the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa and boarded a boat and was going to Tarshish. And the Bible says that God sent a terrible storm down on that boat. The sailors were terrified. Jonah went down into the bottom of the ship and he fell asleep. They all woke him up in a panic, and so what are you doing? Don't you care? Does that sound familiar? 
They brought Jonah back up. They determined what had happened, and they ended up throwing him in the sea, and the, the storm abruptly stopped, and all the sailors were frightened. Kurt, can you pull this up for a minute? I've, I've, I've shown you the parallels here. Look at this. So both Jonah and Jesus were in a boat. They were both in a boat during a great storm. They both fell asleep in the boat. In both cases, angry, terrified sailors wake up the sleeping prophet. In both cases, there's a miraculous intervention and the storm is silenced. In both cases, sailors are more terrified after the storm stops than they were before. But here's the one glaring difference. In the Old Testament story, Jonah is thrown into the ocean to satisfy God's justice and the sailors are rescued. But in this story that we're reading, nobody's thrown in the ocean, right? Jesus seems to, to keep his life intact. Or does he? This is really interesting. Because if, if you say, God, how is it that I'm praying to you and I don't see you, I can't feel you, this storm is killing me, it's crushing me, I don't feel like you're anywhere around and I don't know if, you, if I can trust you. Jesus is showing us in this story as it parallels Jonah, I believe, we see much more clear than the disciples did at this point. We have more revelation than they did. Listen, Jesus was thrown into the greatest storm of all eternity. Do you know that? Jesus was, was thrown into the storm of God's wrath and his justice. That's the only way that storm is ever going to be silenced. That's the greatest, that's the megas storm. It's God's anger toward sin and toward rebellion and toward disobedience. And listen, that storm will destroy all of us. And Jesus said, this is the greatest storm, and I volunteer to give my life to satisfy this storm forever. And listen, he bowed his head, he was thrown into the ocean of God's wrath, and he sunk. And the storm was silenced for all of us. Listen, if Jesus silenced that storm, the greatest storm of God's wrath, he's telling you, and I've got your smaller storms too, right? If Jesus could take captivity captive, he could, he could kill death, he could destroy destruction. What else is there? What other threat is there? It's minor. All other things are minor, right? Paul called everything else this light and momentary affliction. As we move toward a, a, a much greater uh, glory that God has for us. That's the story here. That's the story here. It's not have more faith. Listen, guys, you'll never have enough faith. Our faith is always going to be imperfect. It's always going to be sinful and stained and need to be cleansed. But listen, Jesus had perfect faith. You say, how do you know? Because listen, Jesus knew what his father had called him to do. How much did Jesus trust his father? He was asleep in the ship. It wasn't because he was uncaring. It was because he was part. He, Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. He was tired. He needed a nap. And he took it. He wasn't afraid. He trusted God. The disciples didn't, but Jesus did. And we get his perfect trust to cover our imperfect trust. Isn't that a good deal? How would, you, how would you like it? If you could have just one perfect day, somebody would just give you that as a free gift. You could please God in every thought that you had, every decision that you made, every conversation that you entertained. You could please. Wouldn't that be amazing? How about a perfect week? How about a perfect year God gave you that to offer to him? How about a perfect life? How would you like a perfect, unblemished, unspotted, righteous life? That's what Jesus offers you. When you trust him, you get his perfect life. And your imperfect, unrighteous life, he says, I'll trade you. He loves to take the place. He loves to take the place of guilty sinners. Jesus does. And he says, I'll tell you what. I'll give you my perfect life. I'll take your imperfect life and throw me in the ocean of God's wrath to cover your imperfect life. That's the gospel, friends. That's Jesus saying, you can trust me. Even when you don't see me, even when you don't 
feel me, even when you don't hear me, you can trust me. That's what he's saying. Will you trust him? Will you trust Christ to forgive your sins? Will you believe his promises that he is for you? He's pledged himself eternally to you in the covenant with, signed with his son's own blood. Will you believe that? 